Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a man playing adventure game books out loud as part of an ongoing midlife crisis. My name is H.J. Doom and this episode we're heading off into space to deal with a pesky intergalactic tyrant in 1985's Space Assassin, part of the insanely lucrative fighting fantasy series. The last jaunt in the cosmos was way back towards the beginning of this podcast with the surprisingly sloppily executed Starship Traveller. Will a second bite of the science fiction cherry prove any more successful? We're going to find out very shortly. Space Assassin was written by Andrew Chapman, one of several game books he authored for Fighting Fantasy, and illustrated by Jeffrey Senior with a suitably brooding cover illustration by Christos Akelios. Without any further ado, let's dive straight in. I have generated a science fiction hero who I'm choosing to call Prothesis Spamburglar, because that sounds suitably heroic to me. We've got the standard stats for a fighting fantasy book, skill, stamina, and luck. I did not roll them completely honestly. I waited until I got a better than average roll. Uh, so we've got a skill of 10, a stamina of 21, and a luck of 11. Space Assassin also has a stat called armor, which is 1d6 plus 6. I have an armor of 10 that's used for reducing damage in gunfights. As well as that, we also have to buy our starting equipment. So I rolled a 5, which enabled me to buy an Assault Blaster, which deals 1d6 damage during gunfights, and two grenades, which I can use to blow people up in gunfights. There's hand-to-hand combat, which works as usual, but also gunfights where we both take it in turns to try and roll under our skill and then use our armour to protect us if we are unfortunate enough to be hit. Armour degrades also every time you successfully test your armour, it drops just like luck. No provisions, which always makes me sad, but we do have four pep pills, which I imagine are straightforwardly amphetamines, and each one of those four pep pills will give us five stamina points back. I think that's everything, so let's turn to the mission briefing. For some time, Cyrus, the tyrannical ruling scientist of Odd, your local sector, has been harassing your home planet with his warped minions, destructive robots and evil creatures almost certainly of mutant origin. His most usual crime has been to descend upon your planet and kidnap innocent victims upon whom it is reputed he practices his malign experiments and surgery. In any event, his victims are never seen again. So we're off to a flying start with a writer who appears to be an alien, judging by his use of the English language. Now, however, word has been received that he intends to use your entire world for one gruesome biological experiment, in which he will cover the surface of the planet with radioactive isotopes, while showering deadly viruses upon all living creatures. I'd love to know what kind of evil research he was building on. When he comes to write the paper detailing the effects of radioactive isotopes and deadly viruses together on living creatures. I'd be fascinated to see what papers he cites in the introduction. And the time has obviously come to stop Cyrus. To this end, the authorities have appealed to the Planetary Assassins Guild, 
which has selected you to penetrate into Cyrus's huge starship, the Van der Vecken, capture him and bring him to justice. So we're off to a flying start again because, well, this is brilliant. In a book called Space Assassin, in which we are an assassin, our mission is in fact not to assassinate anybody. I can only assume the kidnapping guild were busy. So, armed with the latest and deadliest weapons, trained in 27 different schools of alien and human martial arts, protected by the best in sensomatic armoured pressure suits, you set off, searching for the Van der Vecken throughout the local star systems, and eventually catching up with it in a relatively isolated system some light years from your home world. Long sentence. It seems to be in the process of refuelling and taking on supplies. You decide your best bet is to smuggle yourself on board the ship's supply shuttle and let that take you to the Van der Vecken. Now, our adventure proper begins, and it begins with a pretty nice illustration of a broadly octagonal spaceship. It looks quite menacing. There's a nice star field in the background and some planets. Yeah, it's a nice little bit of art. Judging by that introduction, this may be a book where the art is actually better than the prose. Secreting yourself aboard the Van der Vecken supply shuttle, you travel from the planet's surface to dock with the main ship. As the shuttle approaches the enormous spacecraft, you clamber into an emergency airlock and await the sounds of contact. You check your spacesuit and weapons, then rest your hand upon the door release, its hair-trigger mechanism ready to snap down and hurl you into the void. In your headset, you can hear the ship's computer counting off the seconds until contact. When it reaches zero, you pull the door release and fly out low over the Van der Vecken's silver hull, while behind you, the shuttle rests like a tiny dart beside the bloated ovoid of its mothership. I do quite like the phrase bloated ovoid. I'm going to try and work that into everyday conversation. As you skim a few metres over the hull, you notice a small iris airlock, your target, ahead of you, protruding slightly like a black disc. Throwing out a magnetic clamp, you bring yourself to a halt, floating lazily over the airlock. Your shadow casts starkly in front of you. After a few deft movements on the airlock mechanism, the iris dilates. You step inside, seal the entrance and fill the airlock with air. You are aboard the Van der Vecken. Stepping out of the airlock, you find yourself at the end of a short corridor, which is blocked in front by an impassable security door. Each wall has a small maintenance hatch, across which the legend Caution is boldly stenciled. On the steel floor by the security door is a small pile of what seems to be organic refuse. If you have a gravity bomb, you could use it to blast your way through the security door. Otherwise, you could examine the left or the right maintenance hatch or take a look through the pile of refuse. So, nice that we've got a range of options at the outset. Now, if there's one thing I know is a thrilling part of every good space adventure, it's rummaging through a pile of refuse, so that is what I'm going to do. The pile of refuse on closer examination turns out to be the body of a tiny, hunchbacked alien critter. Rags that were once clothed wrap its skin, and its six bony limbs lie tangled beneath it. A trail of blood indicates that it must have crawled out of the right-hand maintenance hatch. Rolling the creature over, you notice that it has an electronic device clasped in one hand. Its finger is on the button, and bright wires lead up the arm and disappear into the remnants of a sleeve. Will you remove this device from the body, or leave it alone? There is uh, an illustration 
of the alien creature. It's another really nice little illustration. You can see bits of the wall for scale and yeah it seems to have a external exoskeleton and these big classic alien eyes but it does look in a very sorry condition that said i'm still going to nick whatever that device is because you know this ain't my first rodeo it's not even my first space rodeo and if there's one thing i know about fighting fantasy it's that once you've started rummaging you don't stop till you've found something worthwhile. The device is a small black square with a large red button set into it. The wires leading from it attach to a portable power source. Nothing happens when you press the button, and as you can see several other places where some other widget is meant to plug in, you deduce that the device is incomplete. You put it in your pack. Leaving the alien, will you examine the left maintenance hatch or the right maintenance hatch? Well, the dead alien came out of the right maintenance hatch after being shot or stabbed, so I guess we will have a look at the left. After some difficulty, you manage to open the hatch, which, due to an oversight on some technician's part, falls off and drags a large mass of high-voltage wiring with it. Test your luck. Eight, I am lucky. You retreat in time to avoid the cables and showers of sparks. Obviously, this hatch does not offer a way through, so you turn your attention to the other maintenance hatch. That's a bit disappointing. I'm going to have to follow where the alien was stabbed after all. This hatch opens easily to reveal a long, dark access tunnel crammed with conduits and aluminium latticework cutting through the ship. You climb into it and work your way slowly forwards, coming, eventually, to another maintenance hatch, through which you can hear a muffled, gurgling voice. The tunnel leads on into the darkness. Will you open the hatch or continue down the tunnel? I mean, I'll open the hatch. Of course I'm going to open the hatch. The hatch leads into a small lockup occupied by a faceless humanoid robot armed with an assault blaster and guarding two cells. The gurgling voice you heard is emanating from the first of these. This writer does really love a run-on sentence. The robot does not seem to have noticed your intrusion. Will you ignore the room and continue up the tunnel? Attempt to destroy the robot? Or do you want to attract the robot's attention to try and engage it in conversation concerning what it is guarding? I'm amused by the idea of just trying to strike up a conversation with a presumably psychotic guard robot. So that is what I'm going to do. I mean, sure, Cyrus is a crazed, genocidal scientist. But who's to say he doesn't have several people in his space dungeon who've been prosecuted under a fair and balanced legal process? I say, you say, to attract its attention, because apparently you're Bertie Worcester. Before you can finish, however, the robot spins, aims and fires. The blast smashes into the tunnel behind you and showers the area with molten metal. You will have to fight it. As you have a hatch for cover you may lob a grenade in at the machine. The guard robot has a skill of 7 and a stamina of 6, so I don't think I'll bother with the grenade. I assume we're doing shooting. Are we doing shooting? The rules say that the book will instruct us whether to use shooting or hand-to-hand -hand combat, uh, which is a lie because this entry does not in fact do that. So I'm going to go and assume that I can do whichever I want, and I want to do, I don't know, hand-to-hand -hand combat, preserve my armour. I can't imagine this robot's going to give me much trouble. I'm going to roll some dice. 
I have beaten the guard robot to death. With ease, I took no damage. The robot terminates. If you don't already possess one, you may add the machine's assault blaster to your weaponry. You climb into the room, the only sounds now being the crackle of small circuits popping in the robot's chest and the odd, stifled cough from the first cell. Which cell will you look in first? The one with the sounds emanating from it, or the silent one? Let's have a look at the sound one first. The cell is occupied by a battered old man, so if you are waiting for the obligatory old man to appear in this particular fighting fantasy book. Congratulations, it's happened early doors. The cell is occupied by a battered old man, with scars covering his arms and bandages and stitches the rest. He starts apprehensively when you open the cell door, but upon seeing the smoking remains of the robot through the narrow entrance, he brightens remarkably, telling you of his kidnap and torture by Cyrus and giving you words of encouragement another very long sentence. He doesn't yield much useful information though, but he knows a little about the pilot of the Van der Vecken. He's a canny machine, that pilot, the old fellow cackles. Worries about the strangest things, <laughs> mind if he asks you anything about thinking or feeling, say you don't know, that's the safest course. Excellent, we have a clue. If you haven't already, you can look in the other cell. Otherwise, you leave the room via the maintenance hatch and continue down the tunnel. So let's have a look in the other cell. The second cell appears to be empty, but when you enter, a screaming little ball of fur and legs drops from above the door onto your shoulder. Kind of sounds like my cat. It is an imp. You knock it off with a sharp clout, but not before it has damaged your armour with its fangs. Lose one armour point. There's uh, an illustration of the imp lunging towards the reader. It looks ridiculously cute. So my armour now reduced to nine. The imp scuttles back up the wall and glares down at you with red eyes. If you haven't already, you can look in the other cell. Otherwise, you turn to leave the room via the maintenance hatch and tunnel. A few metres down the tunnel, you find another small hatch. Listening, you can hear nothing. The hatch just feels rather warm. You may continue along the access tunnel or open the hatch. I mean, we're going to open the hatch. Obviously, we're going to open the hatch. There's a lot of fighting fantasy books where the structure is somewhat like a long tunnel with doors coming off it. This is the first one to be quite so nakedly upfront about it. Through the hatch is a small room with several large steel conduits rising out of the floor and disappearing into the ceiling. It's from one of these conduits that the heat you could feel through the hatch emanates. Crossing the room, you come to a sliding door which you open a fraction and peer through the gap. Before you is a large and, for aliens, fashionably furnished room. Odd couches and chairs, tables at just the wrong heights and lights set to just this side of two blue. So I think the indication we're supposed to take from this is that we're some kind of alien racist. Angered that a room on an alien vessel hasn't been designed to accommodate our own personal needs. Seated, reading from the electronics resource sheets are two rodent-like fosnicks. Their white lab coats and tiny pince-nez for their equally tiny eyes betray them as being technical types. We all know you can't trust technical types. Will you enter the room and either threaten these hench beings of Cyrus or leave them alone and return to the access tunnel? 
I like that the options are either threaten or leave alone, nothing in between. Let's give them a good old-fashioned threaten. You take them completely by surprise. They fall to the floor, raise their paws in supplication and beg for mercy. We are but humble scientists, they squeak. Have mercy, don't kill us. You ask them where Cyrus is, but they claim ignorance, saying they just work in a lab down the corridor. Here they indicate a security door behind a decorative screen, and that Cyrus seeks them out when he wants, not they him. You force them to strip and then tie them up, because this hasn't got weird enough. While they are stripping, you notice that each wears a small, narrow cylinder on a long chain around its neck. When you inquire what these devices are, they inform you that they are electronic keys to open the security doors on board the ship. Using these keys, will you proceed through the security door, or will you return to the access tunnel? Let us use these keys, now that we've bafflingly made these Fosniks naked, and proceed through the security door. Genuinely starting to worry about the psychological well-being of the implied protagonist of this story. The door opens onto a long, well-lit corridor. After proceeding down this for a hundred metres or so, you come across a sliding door on the left, while the corridor continues into the distance. Do you want to open the door, or keep following the corridor? I will open the door. Through the door is a small kitchen and dining area. Once again, everything is decorated in an alien style, designed to make human behaviour difficult. It's like they have their own ways. The food that is available on the Mealomatics is, without exception, unpalatable and raw. Worse, they have their own cuisine. You do, however, find a couple of high-energy bars which you may take with you. They count as a single item for pack purposes. When you decide to eat these, five points will be restored to your stamina. Leaving the kitchen, you return to the corridor and proceed along it. The corridor ends in a circular room occupied by a squat, armless, tripedal robot. This robot, which has a pair of electric lashes projecting from its chest, squawks as you approach. Halt! Inspection point! Will you attempt to bluff your way past the machine, or simply attack it? I think I'm just going to simply attack it. Bluffing robots has not gone so well for me in this adventure. In the fight, the robot will fire twice per combat round, each hit doing two points of damage to your stamina. Once again, it's a guard robot with a skill of seven and a stamina six, and it doesn't say that it's a gunfight, but I think we have to assume it must be a gunfight because it does talk about firing twice per combat round. So I'm going to roll some dice. My assault blaster made very short work of the guard robot. I didn't take any damage whatsoever. My armour is unaffected. The robot falls over sideways, thick black smoke pouring from its shell. The room has two exits, a security door in front, on the opposite side of the corridor entrance, and another to the side. Will you inspect the remains of the robot, go through the door in front, or the door to the side? I will go... I will inspect the remains of the robot, thank you very much. I play a lot of action role-playing games. If there's one thing I know, it's looting the corpse is always good. The robot is a useless hulk. But directly underneath where it was standing, you see a floor safe. It's button-covered dial previously hidden by the robot's feet. Looking closer, you see there are three different coloured buttons to press to open it. Blue, green and red. Intrigued, 
you decide to open it. Which colour button will you press first? I'm going to press green because red seems to me to be bad. Blue seems to me to be weird. Green seems to me to be good. As you depress the button, your world falls apart in a soundless explosion. You never see what the safe had hidden. You have failed. So, non-optional button pressing, one of which definitely kills us. We're going to invoke the sausagey finger bookmark rule. Rewind time and see if we can do a little bit better. Let's try the blue. As you depress the button, your world falls apart in a soundless explosion. You never see what the safe has hidden. You have failed. Okay, let's try the red then, I guess. The button depresses, making the safe's dial pulsate with a fluorescent white light. Which button will you press next? Blue or green? Um, I don't know. Green? The second button depresses safely. When you press the third, the dial pops free of the floor, revealing the contents of the safe. Well, not really a safe, but a booby trap for there. Sunk into the floor is a gravity bomb, which would have been set off had you pressed the wrong sequence of buttons. It is now safe to handle, though, so you may add it to your weapon list. You must remember to go back and find out whether there is, in fact, anyone who's prepared to provide a clue to that little puzzle. Because otherwise... That is terrible. So, uh, are we going to go to the door in front or the door to the side? Let's go straight on. Why not? The door opens onto a long, light corridor. Following it, you eventually see another security door on your left. Will you open it or continue down the corridor? I open it. The door opens to reveal a comfortable-looking room whose walls are completely lined with ancient-bound books, microfilms, electronic resource sheets, and journals. On a table in the centre of the room, you find three microfilm volumes that have been left out, presumably for someone to read. One is on the nervous system of mollusks, the second is about neurotoxins, and the third is an article on robotics. They are all possibly relevant, but you only have time to peruse one of them. Which will it be? Write down on your adventure sheet which volume you choose to read. Having completed this, you return to the corridor and proceed along it. It's a slightly odd way of doing that. Rather than giving us a, a choice now and telling us what we read, we just assume that we know something about mollusks, neurotoxins or robotics. Well, on the basis that we've come across a few robots, I'm going to take a punt on reading robotics as being the best option. So I'll read that and we will continue with our adventure. The corridor continues for a very long while and still stretches into the distance when you come across another security door on the side. This one is stenciled Cephalo Squirrels, handle with care. Will you enter the room or continue down the corridor? I mean, it feels like an obvious trap, but I'm going to go in anyway because... I think squirrels are adorable. Opening the door, you step into a room, largely taken up by a glass cage of tiny screaming creatures. They all have six legs and bulging eyes, and most have thick black fur. The odd one's out, having been shaved, for no apparent reason. They are all leaping about their cage in great agitation, swinging from the overhead bars and rattling at the door. The only other thing in the room is a large open crate some metres from the cage. When you try and have a closer look at one of the creatures, or look in the crate instead, 
A nice illustration. The squirrels look like a mixture of black six-legged squirrels and hairless six-legged squirrels. I'm going to say the furry ones are cuter, but I think the hairless squirrels are still cute. So let's have a closer look at them. Stepping over to the cage, you unlatch the door and opening it enough to stick your arm in, reach around for one of the furry critters. As you do this, a number of the little fellows starts rushing at the crack in the door. You try to push them back, but before you know it, a whole wave of them have escaped from the cage and are frantically dashing out into the corridor. When you try and catch them, things go from bad to worse, as the rest of them rush out of the cage and run screaming around the room. You forget about getting them back in the cage. Will you concentrate on catching just one of them or let them all go? I'm just going to let them all go. They run screaming out into the corridor, their chattering gradually diminishing with the distance. Looking in the open crate, you see that it is almost full of an orangey-purple fruit. You can try some of the fruit or just ignore it, leave the room and proceed down the corridor. I guess I was supposed to test the fruit on the squirrels. I've done that absolutely backwards, so I guess I'm going to not risk eating the fruit. I'm going to just proceed down the corridor. The corridor, after another hundred metres, comes to a dead end. On the wall responsible for sealing the passageway off are two large square buttons side by side. Will you press the left one, the right one, or both together? Uh, both together, why not? Without warning... The floor slides away and sends you plummeting down a narrow chute. The floor now above moves back into place, plunging you into darkness. The slide continues for a few minutes until the darkness gives way and you find yourself, apparently, ejected over an alien planet. Strange, though, it looks very close and rather donut-shaped. Not a planetary formation you had been aware could exist. You plummet down towards it, absorbing breathtaking views of wide alien vistas, panoramas and rolling purple hills. Just before you hit the ground at something like 260 kilometres per hour, you mysteriously decelerate to land lightly. You no longer seem to be in the starship, but on another planet. From now on, compass points will be used for directional reference. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this makes no sense. This is absolutely baffling. Still, here we are, apparently on a donut-shaped avian planet, different to the one that we previously saw, that also has some kind of artificial gravity to stop you falling to your doom. I'll... Yeah, I guess we just go with it. You are on a grass-covered plain which rolls on into the north. To the west and south you can see a blue-green forest, while to the east some low, rocky hills rise up out of the grass. Will you go north, west, east or south? I guess I'll go east and maybe I can see something worthwhile from the top of the hills. You are in the midst of low, rocky hills stretching on for kilometres on all sides. Will you have a closer look around the hill's environs? Or just try to get out of them by heading north, west, south or east. Guess I'll have a look around. Now, if you're feeling confused and disoriented, trust me, you're not alone. During your wander around the hills, you come upon the granite entrance of what seems to be a large cave. I mean, I don't think that seems to be a large cave. I think that's just a large cave. Huge rocks press over it and a narrow path twists into its darkness. 
Do you wish to enter the cave or uh, abandon your search and go either north, west, south or east? I must admit I am enjoying the book's complete refusal to acknowledge the fact that this mission has now, by this point, gone very badly wrong. And there's no sense at all of the narrative trying to engage with suggesting some kind of action plan. Just which of these entirely random things do you fancy doing now that you've apparently lost track of the alien spaceship your entire mission was predicated on being on board? So I guess we go into the cave. Why not? Who doesn't love a cave? Inside the cave, you are confronted by a massive, furry, many-legged beast with huge teeth, bulging eyes and razor talons. It roars and rushes forward when it sees you. It looks so ferocious that you fumble and drop your blaster. Will you fight it or run away or use one of your pack items? I've got an incomplete alien doohickey and two energy bars. That's going to help, so I guess I'm going to have to fight it. You fight the creature in hand-to-hand combat. Scalopian Fang has a skill of nine and a stamina of ten. You can run away at any time for an automatic loss of two points of stamina, which I guess we might do if things go really badly, but at the moment we've got plenty of stamina, so I'm going to roll some dice and try and deal with the Scalopian Fang. I have defeated the Scalopian Fang. It reduced me to 13 stamina points, so I've scoffed one of my energy bars because, to be honest, I'd rather be taking those than the uh, off-brand pep pills. Uh, So that gets me back up to 18 stamina. The beast is vanquished, and you are master of its cave. Looking around, you find very little, only bones, and in one niche, an enormous pair of carnivore jaws, which you may take if you wish. Yes, yes, why not? A souvenir. I went to a torus-shaped planet, possibly inside of a bloated ovoid spaceship, and all I got was this manky set of carnivore jaws. Resting in the safety of the cave, you recover five points of stamina. So... That's nice. I'm now back up to full stamina of 21. Eventually, though, you must leave. Which way will you go? North, west, south or east? I mean, (laughs) I'm just just, going to roll a d4. One, we go north. You are on a grass-covered plain which continues into the east and west. To the north is a forest and to the south are some low rocky hills. When you go north, west, south or east, I'm just going to keep on going north. You are surrounded by a forest of short white trees with blue foliage. Do you wish to search the forest or go north, west, south or east? Uh, Let's have a look at the forest and see what's here. The forest is just what it seems to be. A forest. You abandon your search and go either north, west, south or east. Eventually, if I go north long enough, I'll have to go in another direction, I assume. You are on the south side of a vast impassable chasm which runs from west to east. There we go. The bottom is a flat plain. You are on a narrow strip of grassy plain which continues to the west and east. To the south is a forest and to the north you can see the other side of the chasm. Will you go west? or south, or follow the chasm east. Let's follow the chasm east. 
You are on the edge of a vast, impassable chasm which runs to the west and north through the midst of the plains on which you stand, which continue to the south and east. In the bottom of the chasm you can see a wide lake teeming with life. There are also dark, submerged shapes which might be large water animals or perhaps machines. There is no way to get down to find out. Will you follow the chasm north or west or leave the precipice and go south? I can go north again, so I guess I'll go north. I hope this is as thrilling to listen to as it is to play. You are on the east side of a vast impassable chasm which runs to the north and south. In the bottom of the chasm is a river. To the north and south you can see flat plains, while behind you to the east is a forest. To the west you can see the other side of the chasm. Do you wish to go north, south or east? Once again, we're going to go north. Increasingly <laughs> losing the will to podcast. You are on a grass-covered plain which spreads to the southeast and north. To the distant west, you can see some hills rising. Will you go north, east, south or west? I mean, there's literally nothing to say at this point, is there? I'm racking my brains for some aside I can throw in to render this more entertaining. And also because I need to keep saying things so that this becomes a transformative piece of art rather than me just playing through a game book in the event that anyone wants to kick up a fuss about copyright. So I have to keep saying things. That's how this format works. And there's nothing to say because every single entry we go to is functionally identical, except sometimes there's a lake and sometimes there's some hills. So with a growing feeling of weariness, I'm going to go north. You are on a grass-covered plain which rolls on in all directions. Will you go north, west, south or east? I mean, I don't know. I don't know anymore. Obviously, I've done no map, but I've mostly just been going north and I'm just going to continue going north. After a short distance, you come upon a fast-flowing river which cuts across your path. Will you attempt to head north by swimming across this turgid river, or go east, south, or west? Did the writer just realise he'd come in a hundred paragraphs under and go, I've got a brilliant way of bulking out the word count. I can just have the character walk aimlessly at random across the bizarre alien landscape, providing no contextual clues or hints or anything. Just very much like actually being lost in the wilderness. I mean, I feel as though at least one of these paragraphs should have had you pause for a bit of a cry, because there's absolutely no emotional context being provided for any of this wandering. And like my character must be getting pretty tired by now. I feel quite tired and I'm just reading it. So we'll try and swim across the turgid river. We're going to roll three dice and see if the result exceeds our stamina. And with a stamina of 21, three dice will always be equal or less than the stamina. So we make it across safely to the other bank. What wondrous encounters, what amazing adventures might await us on the other side of the bank. You are on a grass-covered plain, which rolls on in all directions. Will you go north, west, south or east? I will go north. 
I'm usually not a massive fan in games of exhaustion mechanics, hunger and thirst and all that. I find them unbelievably stressful. I would quite like a hunger or thirst mechanic in this adventure on the grounds that, at least that way, there might be some kind of end in sight. In podcasting terms, this really is my Moby Dick. This is my white whale. You are on a grass-covered plain which extends to the north and the south. To the west is a forest, while to the east some low hills rise. Have I gone round in a circle? Tell me I haven't gone round in a circle. I mean, the whole planet is Taurus-shaped. I've gone round in a circle. I've been here before. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So... I don't even know what to do now. Okay, we'll go west. You are surrounded by a forest of short white trees with blue foliage. Will you search the forest or go north, west or south or east? I am going to go west. You are on a broken plain covered by rocks, low red shrubs and large black burnt patches. Have you been among these red shrubs before? I have not. This is new. This is novel. Something's going to happen. You accidentally brush against one of the shrubs. It explodes violently, leaving a large burnt patch on the ground and burning your spacesuit. Lose one armor point. You avoid the shrubs. To the northwest and south, you can see rolling grass-covered plains. East is a forest. Do you want to go north, west, south or east? Well, we'll continue going west. You are on a grass-covered plain which continues to the south, but to the east develops into broken, scrubby wasteland. To the north is a forest, and in the west some low hills rise. Roll one die. Is the result odd or even? It is... even. A waste of a good six. The ground collapses, sending you into a deep pit lined with punji stakes. Lose one armour point. After extricating yourself from the stakes, you manage to climb out. Armour is now seven. Will you go north, west, south or east? Bonus, this one is just dispensing with any kind of pretense. No description, just here's a list of cardinal directions. We go west. You climb into the midst of some low, rolling hills surrounded by a flat sea of grass. Will you explore these hills for a while or leave them? Are these the same hills that I've been in before? I can't even remember. So let's explore and find out. In a shallow dell, you come across a small village of hemispherical adobe huts formed in a ring. In the centre of this ring, you can see a totem pole. There is no movement or sign of life other than a few improbable-looking chickens scratching in the dust. I would love to have some more details on what constitutes an improbable-looking chicken. I've got an idea in my head, whether that accords with the author's, I have no idea. So, if you haven't been here before, you may go down and have a closer look. I mean, yes, definitely, because maybe there's someone in this village who can tell me what on earth is going on. When you are within 50 metres of the nearest hut, a loud hubbub starts up as about 20 aliens looking like fierce little easter eggs with bushes of hair come streaming out of the village towards you as the aliens near a higher pitched chanting and wailing starts up from an unseen source in the village will you stand fast 
open fire or flee. There's a picture of the aliens who look pretty fearsome, I have to say. They've got mad staring eyes and wide mouths with lots of fangs and what look to be furry tongues sticking out. I don't think they look much like Easter eggs. Or if someone presented me with an Easter egg that looked like this, I think I would probably decline to eat it. Perhaps that's a better way of putting it. I am going to stand fast. The aliens halt their rush two metres or so from you, form into a wide column and begin a complicated shuffling dance, while another group of aliens, apparently singing, shuffle slowly out of the village. Once again, I think if it sounds like singing, it's probably singing. After the dance, they lead you into the very centre of the village, where a couple of obviously very important creatures officially welcome you in front of the totem pole. The pole is made from wood, but is topped by something obviously not of their manufacture, a small black square indented with a large red button. Would you like to come into possession of this device? I would. I would. I have the other bit of it, I think. Do you have the matching piece of the device? I do indeed. Opening your pack, you clasp the matching part and raise it above your head, shouting, See! Its brother returns! The amazed aliens collapse to the ground and begin wailing. Raising one of their chiefs up, you convince him, via sign language, that he should give you the part on the totem pole. When he understands, he signals to a younger alien who climbs the pole and returns with the part which the chief then presents to you. I mean, no clue as to what this device is for. No clear reason why the other alien who looked nothing like this group of aliens had half of the piece. Will we find out why these primitive aliens have part of the machine? I mean, I suspect not, but we've got it now, and that's the important thing. The two pieces plug together to form a black oblong with two red buttons. Once the two pieces are together, they begin to hum, and one edge lights up with the legend Pan-Dimensional Homing Device. Emergencies only. Counted as one item for pack purposes. Homing device. The creatures form a crush around you and lead off to the south, singing and dancing all the while. After a number of kilometres, you leave the hills and cross a grass-covered plain. Of course you do. Arriving eventually at a pier in a river. The aliens make it obvious that they want you to have one of the sturdy-looking canoes tethered there. To be fair, if I'd met this character, I'd want to get shot of them as quickly as possible as well. Please go, take a canoe, go far, far away from us. Will you take one of the canoes or decline their offer? I will take the canoe. The boat handles well and is obviously very tough. You follow the river westwards, hardly having to paddle except to steer, because of the strong current. Eventually the river describes a wide arc to the south, and the sounds of approaching rapids become apparent. The current quickens. Do you want to beach the craft? You're going to go on either the east or west bank, or you can try and shoot the rapids. I am genuinely terrified that if I land on either bank, what will happen is it will say, you are on a grassy plain. You can go any way you like. So I'm definitely not going to land on either the west or the east bank. I'm going to shoot those rapids. Rocks appear out of the water and cliffs rise on both sides as you hurtle south. Ahead, the roar of white water increases. The boat is swept down through a series of water slides, 
Small waterfalls and jumbled rocks. Roll two dice. If the result exceeds your skill, you have lost control of your boat and fall out of it. Roll one die and deduct the total from your stamina as you get dashed against some rocks. Either way, eventually the rapids end and you are carried down the centre of a gigantic chasm. Now that's quite neat. Credit where credit's due. You end up in the same place, but you might get a bit battered and bruised. That's quite a fun, simple piece of design, which also is all done in a single paragraph. So yeah, that's that's quite nice. My skill is 10 and I've rolled a 6, so I am safely through the rapids. You are in the middle of a vast still lake flanked by towering cliffs. Looking down into the water, you notice a metallic glint from a large submerged shape. You dive down to investigate and are confronted by a small submarine, obviously in working order but currently unoccupied. A tug on your heel distracts you from your find, especially when you turn to see that a house-sized octopoid bivalve has a firm grip on your leg with one of its tentacles. It drags you towards its shell. There is a pretty good picture of the house-sized octopoid bivalve. Yeah, it's got a lot of tentacles, looks a bit kind of Cthuloid. Very Cthuloid, if I'm honest. Really evocative, really nice art, much better than the prose deserves. Have you read the book on mollusk nervous systems? I have not. You engage the bivalve in hand-to-hand combat. The bivalve has a skill of nine and a stamina of eight. I am so excited to be able to roll some dice. This is the most excited I've ever been for a straightforward combat against a bivalve with a skill of nine and a stamina of eight. I have defeated the bivalve. I took two points of damage reducing my stamina to 19. So let's find out what's in this convenient abandoned submarine. You dive down to the submarine and climb through the airlock. Safe. There is only one control for the submarine, an on-off switch set into the arm of a chair in the conning tower. You turn this to on. The submarine moves, gliding into a tunnel in the lake bed. The journey takes a while and allows you some much-needed rest. Restore four points to your stamina. Eventually, you surface into a large room, half of which is a pool of water for the submarine, while the other half looks, strangely, like the interior of the Van der Vecken. Climbing from the conning tower into the dry half of the room, you see that there is only one exit. You go through it. I will say that all of that wandering about aimlessly has made the prospect of entering what I imagine will be a long, straight corridor strangely attractive. No, actually, it is much weirder. Behind the door is a path floating in midair at a precipitous height over a wide and distant countryside. It must be miles below you, yet it is still within the Van der Vecken. The path, looking tenuous and unreassuring, flies arrow straight into the distance. You head across it, eventually arriving at a T-junction. The path splits and flies off in two new directions, neither offering a visible end to the possibility of a fatal drop. Will you follow the path left or right? We'll go right. After a number of kilometres, you see that the path ends in a large aluminium cube, also floating rather paradoxically in thin air. As you get closer, you see there is a door in the side of the house-sized cube. You cannot see if the path continues out the other end. Will you go through the door or turn back and proceed down the left-hand branch of the path? 
in for a penny, in for a pound, we'll go through the door into the aluminium cube. Opening the door, you discover that the cube is a heavily insulated room containing about a hundred cryogenic sleep capsules, large white sarcophagi in row after row of frost-encrusted silence. Closer examination reveals that only two of these capsules are currently in use. I don't know about you, but I always keep my sarcophagi in a aluminium cube floating miles above a torus-shaped planet that exists in the hold of my otherwise very ordinary spaceship. Will you revive one of the occupants of these sarcophagi or leave the room alone? I will revive one of the occupants, of course. The capsules are indistinguishable, apart from the life signs monitor, which indicates that the second capsule's occupant has a slightly higher metabolic rate than the first. Will you attempt to revive the first or the second? I'll try and revive the first, because if they're slow, if they turn out to be hostile, then maybe I'll get the drop on them. You start the revive cycle. After a few minutes, some sounds of activity arise from within the capsule, which then swings open, letting out a monstrous spider-like creature, a bit bigger in the head, open brackets, relatively, close brackets, and smaller in the abdomen than most spiders, but nevertheless, a spider. A rare example of a writer literally changing their mind in the space of a single, very long sentence. We start off with spider-like and end at it's a spider. There's a very decent illustration of the spider and the uh, artist appears to agree with the final conclusion of the author that it is in fact just a spider. So uh, do you want to fight it, run away, attempt to communicate with it or search through our pack for an alternative? Well, I am going to do the silliest of these options and attempt to communicate with it because I no longer give a fig for attempting to complete this mission in anything approximating a sensible fashion. You wave your arms around, roll your eyes, and make clicking insect noises, but soon stop when you remember that spiders often eat insects. The spider, meanwhile, has been watching your antics very closely. Very nice, it says, evidently thinking you were dancing for it. You strike up a conversation, but the spider doesn't know very much useful information, mainly stuff about insects and trees from its home planet of Dai. Tells a sad tale of being captured by Cyrus for perverse experimentation, and in gratitude to you having effected its release, it gives you a small sachet of what it calls Anti-Mollusk Formula 4, evidently very popular on the planet Tai. Do you wish to revive the occupant of the second capsule? So, uh, I've only got room for five things in my pack, not including weapons. Actually, no, I can still... Yeah, that's fine, I can fit that in as well. So, yeah, we'll take that. Um, well, I think we're going to quit this room while we're ahead. So, let's let's go onwards. The only exit from the room is through the door you entered by. Going through this, you trudge the kilometres back along the airborne path past the T-junction and down the other left-hand route. The path flies straight for a long while before ending in another T-junction. Looking down, you can still see the alien countryside, while to the left and right the path hangs in the air, precipitous and unending. Which way would you turn? Let's go right again, because... Well, why not? So, we've been here before, we need to go left. You make good time. The path curves for a bit, 
then ends in a massive grey wall which seems to extend down towards the alien countryside. Going through the door at the end of the path, you find yourself in what is, obviously, a security nexus. Two dome-headed guards dressed in black with matching leather straps, boots and holsters are seated at a wide console, engrossed in a direct telecast from Epsilon Indy of Zero-G Fangball, which is showing on all ten security monitors in the room. The guards leap to their collective feet when they see you, shine the top of their scalps and take up assertive positions. Who are you? they ask suspiciously. Will you fight them? Attempt to bluff them into thinking you are part of the ship's crew, or look into your pack for some other means of overcoming this obstacle. Uh, let's see whether I can use anything in my pack. So, uh, the options are aerosol can of nerve gas, deck of cards, container of ball bearings, and pan-dimensional homing device, of which I have only one, which is the pan-dimensional homing device. So, I guess I will use that. You press the buttons on the homing device. Immediately, the guards are surrounded by a pulsing orange light, which seems to freeze them. Again, I think it just freezes them. After a moment, a pair of revolving doors materialise around them and promptly turn, taking the unwitting security officers out of sight. The doors continue to turn around a couple of times before evaporating. There is no sign of the guards. Like, whatever the author was smoking, I quite fancy some of it, because it is clearly trippy as all heck. The floor of the room, apart from the few tiles you are standing on, disappears as well to reveal a truly enormous giant standing on a hyperspatial mountain. It speaks. Payment for those two will either be two weapons, or four grenades, or eight pieces of armour, or any two other pieces of technology that you might possess, such as gravity bomb, infrared goggles, nerve gas, etc. Failure to pay will result in your instantaneous transmission from this dimension to another of my choice. Okay, so I'll bribe it with the gravity bomb and the anti-mollusk formula. Actually, no. I'll bribe them with the homing device in the anti-mollusk formula. Doesn't say I can't use the technology itself to bribe the man who has an unhealthy interest in grenades. So, yeah, onwards. The guards are vanquished, but a red light is flashing on the video controls. Perhaps somebody or something has been alerted. You had better hurry. The door has two other exits. One is a security door and the other is a simple manual sliding door. If you don't already have one, you may take an assault blaster from one of the guards. So I think we will go through the sliding door. The door leads to a small kitchenette with a delightful aroma. A pot of coffee is sitting, begging to be drunk, and on a sideboard are some fresh sandwiches. Will you stay here a while to eat or go back to the security nexus and through the other exit? I don't know if it's a Stockholm Syndrome, but I've kind of come back round to enjoying this again. I think I'm just sort of relaxing into how completely ludicrous and divorced from any kind of good sense it is. Am I going to eat the sandwich and the coffee that's apparently been laid on for me? Yeah, why not? You sit back and take it easy for a bit. Regain five points of stamina. After recuperating, you leave the kitchenette and go back into the security room and through the exit. Oh, I was already on for health, but hey, good to have that confirmed. Probably pretty hungry after the something like 45 million kilometres I felt like I walked on the 
weird internal planet. The exit leads you down a corridor and into a wide, circular room whose floor space is almost completely taken up by a deep, still pool. The only areas not covered with water are a path leading around the edge of the room and a very narrow bridge without handrails which passes over the middle of the pool. Both of these lead from where you stand to another opening on the other side of the room. Will you cross the room by taking the bridge or the path? Let's go path. You are about halfway around the pool and then a series of ripples spreads across the face of the water. You hurry along but notice to your horror the tentacles are rising out of the pool's edge and crawling like slimy green serpents towards you. Before you can run, you are surrounded. Out of the water rise bloated green bodies, ghastly yellow eyes glinting and hungry beaks clicking. Confronting you are two creatures which resemble both man and octopus. Will you fight them, or search through your pack for some other means of defence? Uh, I don't think I'm going to have anything that can really help me, because I gave the anti-mollusk Formula 4 to the nice giant who got rid of the security guards for me. So I think I will fight them. There is a characteristically evocative and dynamic picture on the facing page of the weird mollusk men. I wonder if I can lob a grenade at them. I haven't really had a chance to use a grenade yet. Oh, if you have a grenade, you may throw one into the pool. Let's do that. Roll one die. Is the result even or odd? It is even a four. That's fine. I'm happy to roll a four. One of the octopus creatures catches the grenade in mid-flight with a couple of its tentacles and holds it aloft. The grenade explodes. Roll the usual dice to see how much damage each creature takes, but in addition, as the blast was so close to you, deduct one point from your own armour. Armour now six. You fight the monsters hand to hand. If you have read the book on mollusk nervous systems, you inflict one extra point of damage every time you hit the creatures. I have not. Foolishly, I thought that my mini encounters with robots meant that the robotics would be more use. So there are two mutants, skill 8, stamina 8, and skill 8, stamina 6. Let's work out how much damage they've each taken. So the first one has taken 6 points of damage, and the second one has taken 4 points of damage. So in fact, they're both on 2 stamina. And I'm assuming, because it doesn't say, that I have to fight them at the same time. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the mutants. And they did no damage to me, perhaps unsurprisingly, given that I'd already given them a good taste of my fine, fine grenades. The bodies of the creatures float gently on the surface of the pool. You run to the exit. Through the opening is a chamber occupied by a brutish-looking extraterrestrial draped in large sheets of armour plate and toting a whopping great disintegrator aimed at you. In the wall behind this unfriendly being are three large circular doors. Stop, it says, peering at you with a pair of close-set beady eyes. To pass, you must answer my question, if you think you are intelligent enough. Will you attempt to answer the creature's as-yet-unasked question? That's remarkably clunky phrasing. Look into your pack for some other means of passing it by, or forget about the niceties and just blast it. Uh, there's a picture of it. It looks kind of like a samurai, but a samurai with a really big 
gun. I guess I will go for the question. I consider myself to be as clever as the next idiot. So, let's see. What's the question? You ask. Yes, answers the alien. What is the next letter in the following sequence? O, T, T, F, F, S, S, E. When you have decided what the next letter in the sequence should be, determine the number of that letter using the classic A equals 1, B equals 2, etc. Multiply that number by 10, and that is the number you should turn to. If the page you turn to doesn't make sense in context, then you have obviously made a mistake and are destroyed by the creature's disintegrator. So, time to stretch the old grey cells. After spending a frankly embarrassing amount of time staring at that puzzle, I thought I'd come up with the solution, went and checked the relevant paragraph, and it wasn't the right one at all. So I have been murdered by this riddling alien. Ooh, those alien samurai with their infernal riddles. And the adventure is over. I will be back in a couple of seconds with my closing remarks when I'm sure I will have plenty to talk about. So, well, it's hard to know exactly what to say after an experience like that. I think it's fair to say that Space Assassin isn't one of the best fighting fantasy game books and seems to raise more questions than answers. Questions like, why is it called Space Assassin when you aren't trying to assassinate anyone? Why is one of the key security features of this futuristic spaceship a samurai with a riddle? Why does the dimensional portal manifest as a revolving door? What does a pan-dimensional entity need so many grenades for? What killed the dead alien at the start and why do we never find out? Why is there an entire Torah-shaped planet in the hold of the ship? Why is there an unmanned submarine in the lake? Who thought that an aluminium cube on a dangerously narrow walkway miles above a Torah-shaped planet was a sensible place to put the cryogenic stores? Who thought a walking tour of a Torah-shaped planet with hardly any actual encounters would be a fun way to spend time? Some, but not all, of these questions have answers. I did a little digging and I discovered that Space Assassin was the first attempt at a game book that Andrew Chapman had written, and that he essentially wrote it immediately after playing book one, Warlock of Firetop Mountain. He then sent off the manuscript to Puffin on the off chance they would be interested, and indeed they were. It was, by his own admission, written in an ad hoc manner, and it wasn't originally written using the fighting fantasy system at all. It therefore needed to be retooled to fit in with the house style, which was quite the challenge, and then additional material was required to bring it up to 400 paragraphs. It was also allegedly somewhat further messed with in the editing process, with several puzzles being changed for no clear reason that the author could understand. So when you grasp the somewhat convoluted gestation period for Space Assassin, along with that constant writer's bugbear of editorial interference, everything begins to make a little bit more sense. 
and I do mean a little bit more sense. But if I'm prepared to let Chapman off the hook to a certain extent, there's also some deep issues with the book that I do think need to be laid at his door. Structurally, it manages to be both aggravatingly linear and incomprehensibly laid out at the same time, which is quite the feat. We've seen in previous fighting fantasy books that a linear structure isn't necessarily a bad thing. You can use it to take the reader on a tour of set pieces, like in Island of the Lizard King, or use it to showcase a lengthy journey through different environments, like in Caverns of the Snow Witch. It's possible to write in such a way so as to hide the fact that the structure is essentially one long corridor. One thing that doesn't hide, the structure being a long corridor, is a literal long corridor, and that's more or less exactly what you get in Space Assassin's early sections. The whole environment feels very bland and samey, right up to the point that the hallucinogens kick in, and then you find yourself in a wilderness safari that makes absolutely no sense, and which is laid out so as to facilitate walking round in circles. It's a genuinely baffling decision, and as far as I can tell, it adds nothing to the book apart from some additional time. You do get the other half of a pan-dimensional door device, but I don't think that's actually required to beat the game. Also, how did the little egg aliens end up with the second half of the device? There's always more questions with Space Assassin. Always more questions. To make matters worse, the whole section, the whole benighted meandering section, can be avoided entirely if you take the right route through the ship, and that doesn't help the feeling that this rather ugly sidetrack is entirely pointless. The various puzzles that there are sit rather strangely in the narrative. Now, evil wizards coming up with unnecessarily elaborate magical puzzles to keep intruders out of their lair that is a staple of fantasy gaming. They don't really make any sense, and that's famously lampshaded in Death Trap Dungeon, which revels in not making any sense, but they are an accepted part of the genre. Now, while I accept, theoretically, that there's no reason why an insane galactic despot wouldn't just do the same, it just doesn't emotively gel anything like as well. Answering a gargoyle's riddle just feels more natural than being set a word puzzle on a spaceship to get through a door. Oedipus may have had to answer the riddle of the Sphinx, but Luke Skywalker didn't have to solve an anagram to rescue Leia from the Death Star prison. There's also the puzzle, and I use the term loosely, with the floor safe, which will kill you if you make any mistakes, and where the solution is, as far as I can tell, completely arbitrary. That makes no sense and provides a real feel bad moment because there is no option to ignore the safe once you've found it. However, it's not all bad. There are some neat ideas that I do want to call out. The shooting rules and armour are quite fun. I don't think there should have been any hand-to-hand combat at all, but that's by the by. I suspect that may have been an editorial decision. There's also some neatly designed fights showing yet more potential wrinkles that you can throw into the combat system. There's an alien god who fights with a whole bunch of different weapons, which means you randomise skill and damage each turn. Uh, If you don't want to deal with a samurai's riddle, you can fight it. It's only got a skill of five, but its disintegrator is so powerful that a single hit will instantly disintegrate you. I really like that. That's a neat trick. Perhaps the most amazing bit of design is the simulated tank battle that occurs in a later part of the book. With only a simple grid and an escalating status number, Chapman has managed to design an entire cat and mouse game. 
running off a remarkably small number of paragraphs in which you try and destroy an enemy tank which is stalking you through an arena laid out like a city block. Why this happens in the middle of a spaceship is anyone's guess, but it's an incredibly advanced piece of design which showcases once again that you can do a surprising amount with a few paragraphs and some clever logic. It's not actually all that much fun to play, sadly. It feels more like a proof of concept than anything else. It takes absolutely forever, and it's very dryly written, necessarily. But I think there is the bones there of a really memorable finale. I think with a bit of iteration, you could come up with something that would feel like a very special climax to an adventure game book, particularly if you've built it up narratively through the preceding sections. I mean, here it's just thrown in more or less at random, and that is pretty much the motto of Space Assassin, more or less at random. Ultimately, despite the near breakdown caused by those endless grasslands, I've kind of come around to enjoying Space Assassin. I don't think it's good by any sane metric, but there is something genuinely fascinating about reading something that is clearly someone working out how to design from first principles. It's decidedly arbitrary, endlessly frustrating, and happy to kill you for no clear reason. But there is a singular vision underpinning it, and the sheer hallucinogenic strangeness of some of the design choices and the eccentric editing makes it into a very memorable experience, if nothing else. So... That was Space Assassin, and that's all for this episode. If you've enjoyed it and want to support the hard work that goes into every episode of Fantastic Fights, and also obligate me to make regular bonus content, then you can do so by going to patreon.com hjdoom and pledging as little as one English pound to support my nonsense. If you're not able to support me financially, or don't want to, then why not leave a little review on the podcast provider to help someone else discover my work? If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. I do love receiving emails. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll see you soon.